it's interesting to to look at all of these different groups, these European ethnic groups and how they settled in America. And some of these effects are still present today. Uh, obviously, there, there's a lot of assimilation. And, and, you know, many people might not think of themselves as Scots-Irish or being of German descent. They might know it, but they might not be aware of how that's that's it continues to shape their the part of the country they live in right we we can look at you know the scandinavian and german immigration to the, you know the midwest and we can look at how in some ways the midwest is you know similar to perhaps scandinavia and and, and germany these days in terms of some of the political attitudes and so forth so maybe some people get carried away with that but but these you know founding populations that that settled certain parts of America absolutely do still have relevance to you know just kind of the the state and the you know yeah the general state of these parts of the country i know what you mean by carried away where it's they're not personally trying to achieve anything in their life and they just take their genetics or whatever for oh it's just this it's just this where it's a way of being though isn't it i suppose it's worth thinking about what's the utility of knowing that what's the utility of thinking about okay what was the constitution as in what a real constitution is which is a way of being that's deeply implicit and embedded in a people that actually gives form to their very existential being and then gives form to perhaps finally at the end of the thing a document they might write called the constitution right so in the modern America, what's the use of that? Even if it's the truth of an old historical American being, this is, okay, here are the different Anglo-Saxon ways that are connected to it. How does that help us now? But, I mean, if you want to see how a law can function and how perhaps to educate or even if that's still possible to educate like, <laughs> the rest of the population into that, perhaps that's the utility. I mean... Yeah, I mean, I, for me, I'm always looking for the truth of the being of a nation. When Americans talk about themselves, I say, well, it's a people, isn't it? And what was that mm -hmm. people grounded in? In its being. And you have to figure out what that being is. And personally, yeah. I think when you become aware of that or conscious of what your ethnic group is and what, where, what its ways are, that makes you more powerful. You have the historical being there, and that, that informs your possibilities, what ideas come up for you. Because if you're just programmed top-down from the machine, your ideas are just given to you from the what Heidegger calls the, the they, right? Which is the sort of liberal programming, that sort of public man, das man, right? Right. Then it's yeah. just in advance given to you. But if you think, if you look back into your past and sort of clear to the authenticity, the authentic possibilities of your way of being are thrown to you, as he calls it, right? Which is just your possibilities, right? Your ideas that come up for you. Thing is, isn't the trouble though with us being so programmed with that liberalness that we don't identify with it. We don't think about it. Whereas other ethnic groups and they come here do when they're competing with us or when they're, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're told that America is the product of, it was built by black people and white people were all, <laughs> you know, bad slavers and whatever else. Obviously that's, that's the prevailing liberal narrative. And if you accept that, there isn't much of a reason to appreciate the various European ethnic groups which founded and, you know, over the course of time created what is what was known as Americans for most of American history. Right. Why would you? They're just bad. They're racist. They're they were all bigots. There's no need to understand any of that. And that is a consequence of the flagrant anti-white agenda that that exists is it. it you know, if, if you think that white people are all bad, if every everything that a white, you know, 
a country predominantly with white people has done throughout history has has been you know evil and these are evils that need to be addressed and there is no need to appreciate it right there is no need i mean they say there's no white culture and you know sometimes what people are saying is there's no white culture there's only irish culture italian culture and whatever okay well i mean that's that's you know the race and ethnicity are both levels of identity that exist and you can you can talk about both but i think what's really important is to understand how American identity has changed over time. There's I mean, there's all sorts of cliche statements about how you need to understand the past in order to understand the present, in order how, to understand where you're going, what the future is going to be. And I think there's a lot of truth to those. Uh, Sam Huntington wrote an excellent book, Who Are We? And that really is, I don't know about the book on American identity, but it's definitely one of them and one of the best ones. And it's a very exhaustive study of what what was considered to be what was it to be an american throughout history it wasn't just race it also wasn't just religion um and it also wasn't just just kind of a civic creed it was you know at, at the founding of of america there was a racial component right it was understood that you were an american was was a white man it's right there in the naturalization act of 1790 when the founders got together and decided what kind of country they were going to have the first Naturalization Act explicitly stated that it was to be for, uh, for what was it, free white men of, of good moral character. And there's also an ethnic component as well. It was under, you know, predominantly, this was, this was a white and Anglo-Saxon thing, right? It's right, right in there in, in WASP, right? White, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant. So you have race, you have ethnicity, and then, of course, religion was another very important um, you know, people, there's there a lot of these narratives where they want to talk and people want to talk about, oh, America was liberalism from the start. And, you know, there, there were certain strains of thinking, okay, but that was a very different liberalism from what you have yeah, yeah. today. If people want to make the argument that X led to Y, okay. Um, but Protestantism played a very important role, arguably a far more important role than any of, than, you know, Montesquieu or John Locke. Yeah, that, that stuff did have an effect in, in shaping America's institutions, but really just like the lifeblood of this country was to a large extent, Protestantism. Um, you also had a creedal component. Sam Huntington identifies the American creed of, uh, you know, limited government and separation of church and state, freedom, you know, the various uh, civic freedoms, freedom of speech, uh, the right to bear arms, these things. That that to be an American, right, it wasn't just that you were white Protestant uh, of, of uh, Anglo-Saxon background. Yes, you also had to have the ideological component. So the people who are, uh, you know, explicit, maximally, uh, racial nationalists are, are are incorrect about that as well because it's they say you know America was never there there was an idea of America as a set of ideas it's just that that wasn't the only thing there that was rooted in right this wasp situation and then there's a cultural component as well so the last I'll say about this is because uh, I obviously want to turn it back over to you here is <laughs> yeah, it's great great yeah is is um that Sam Huntington points out and it's very tragic but this is what's important to understand here. The most important aspect of this is that there's been this process of erosion, how over time, these these various layers of identity that made up the American people have 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 withered away and that we see that continuing to this day. Right. So the racial component disappeared or or lost salience. It, it kind of was submerged in the 19th century when you had a lot of European ethnic and Catholic immigration into this country. Right. When my Irish, uh, you know, Catholic ancestors came over and roughly the, you know, I think it was 1830s, 1840s, sometime around there. And so at that point, you know, that it was, it, it shifted to being more about, that was where the ethnic component 
kind of not that it didn't matter, but right. Okay. You have, it was more like, well, okay, well the white angle was, was more considered because um, especially you had the civil war and, 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 you know, after the civil war reconstruction uh, it was, it was, you know, the differences between the races were, were very apparent. And, you know, if you're an Irish Catholic, if you're an Italian, whatever, yes, they, they were considered white there. There were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of, you know, friction between them and, and kind of the native wasps. Um, but that, that was when like the, the era of kind of racial nationalism, so to speak, uh, civil rights comes around. That's when the race stuff got swept to the side. That was no longer fashionable. That was no longer what the people running the country wanted the country to be about. So that shifted over to it's, it's kind of and Martin Luther King Jr. Obviously was when he said, you know, the color of judge people by the quality of their, the content of their character, not the color of their skin, right? Conservatives look at that. They cherry pick that quote. And they think this guy was a colorblind conservative. And what they're saying is this guy cared about like the creedal and the cultural, maybe even the religious components of American identity. Okay. Well, he did favor, you know, he's a race huckster. He favored racial handouts to black people. So he was not like a colorblind conservative in any sense. Um, that and they've been we're at the point now where this the idea of an American creed, of an American culture, of a common religion, of Christianity, these things are being withered away before our eyes. They are being eroded before our eyes. So this process is still ongoing, right? If you were to even say that uh, America should have English as the official language and that you know no other no government institutions should, you know, if, if you affirm any common culture at this point other than, I don't know, maybe Black Lives Matter and Netflix, you know, just kind of the lowest common denominator, consumerism and, and liberalism, then you are you are guilty of racism. They say that's white supremacy. So uh, it, understanding why this erosion has happened is, yeah, that's a very lengthy discussion, but it is worth understanding at the very least that it is happening and that if, you know, we lose sight of, if we, we can't even hold on to a common culture or creed in this country, uh, then the country is going to be reduced to the level of a mere economic zone. And that's the, you know, the proverbial global shopping mall. The only thing that people have in common in such an America would be economic transactions. You're in the same economic zone. And that's, that's really a dark, that, that, that's the death of America basically. And the West more broadly. And that's exactly what we're fighting against. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it was Jung that said that no nation in history has ever, uh, survived uh, sort of multiculturalism. So nations such as these are like a mound, uh, an anthill mound of, you know, anthills built on sand. At the first gust of wind, they just blow away because there's nothing that holds any of the, the discrete instances of different cultures together. So they just blow away, like first gust of wind. Yeah. Uh, and these anchors are what, I think that common anchor they're common, uh, like a value, for instance, if you go deeply philosophical into it, isn't a proposition. It's sort of a quote from the Bible is it's written on the heart, right? Which means it's in, it's, it's deeply in being. It's an attractor, essentially. So if you can't have that inherited, people might say it's passed in the developmental stage, father to son, mother to daughter or whatnot. There's a certain degree which it can be educated. But if you don't have that, you're not drawn to the same things. So if you're split into these individual cells that are drawn to different things. There's nothing that can be used by a political party or anything to bond you together other than the most base stuff, like you mentioned, economic unit. Uh, there's nothing that can be used as a weapon um, to fight a sort of globalism or whatnot. Um, I think, yeah, it's, 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 
you need a grounded understanding of where you came from because that is still part of your being, your existential being. It's in the past. And to throw a, a vision forward, you have to have something that generates the possibilities. And the, the more you know of that, the more you're grounded. Uh, I think there's truth to what you said earlier, where, where where you came from actually generates partly the possibilities or at least unlocks them because I think your past is in you still disorganized or Jung would talk about it that way anyways when you're brought up you might not know your history but it's sort of disintegrated your ancestors and if you spend time up to your middle age understanding it it sort of aligns it all and your being aligns and then you can throw a vision forward to do that properly um you also mentioned I'm oh, sorry, you're about to jump in, Wade. Well, I just wanted to chime in real quick. I, I am interested in what you have to say here. Uh, yeah, I think I think a good way of looking at it is that we, you know, the past is alive in us in a sense that we are we are to be part of the people, which everyone is, is even if they don't know it, is to be part of a historical experience, a trajectory. Mm. It's an ongoing thing. Mm. Um, so you know, while people these days might have the tendency to look to uh, the past and just view it as something that happened and then it ended at some arbitrary point in time no 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 it's 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 a trajectory it's an ongoing thing and in the sense it's still the past is still kind of happening right it's still Mm. everything that's happening now is the result of of causality that existed in the past Mm. these ongoing chains of this x led the y uh, in ways that are uh, honestly mind-boggling to comprehend so the way you put it was good and i I think it's just important for people to understand yeah it it is an ongoing thing right right this historical experience we in the west are having and those philosophical things are still up for grabs, right? Yeah. People say time, they don't even know what time is. If you take Heidegger's understanding of time, time is manifested by us, right? And we have three ecstasis, one that goes into the past, that's still there giving form to who we are. And you think about your memory, it's like that, is that you'll constantly have your past giving form to how you currently see the world. So if we're a unit as individuals, that think about it, your mem- memories constantly give form to what's going on and you can look back into your past and clear the inner clear clear the the lies like you tell yourself various lies about your past if you look into your past and think about what were the actual events what were just the events not the violin playing where oh they said this or they said that but just the events what you can clear and get to the truth and i've done this before and it really gives you a moment of vision when you clear things in deep in the past and memory and just just uncover the events getting to the truth of them it actually opens up a way of seeing the world like your your perspectival seeing where you currently are sort of glistens with possibility based on Mm -hmm. so if that's true it's also true of being as a whole of a people let's say intersubjectively and the cognitive scientists are talking about this distributed cognition i know people on my channel i talk about this a lot they say oh he's going on about it again but anyway in distributed cognition, we are it's a, a, a being of the people, which mm-hmm. is part of the ethnos, right? I mean, yeah. and that and so that's again reinforcing this point that the past matters and also getting to the authentic truth of the past. So when people say we shouldn't look back in the history or uh we just oh again, you can't really project a true vision until you really understand what you are and you clear that, uh clear what you are. And I think, too, that that ethnic, I don't know whether this is even worth saying now because it's so impractical to get people to, to convert into a way of being or an ethnos. They're just not going to do it because we're not even promoting it. But, yeah, it, it is a possible, even though you can't be genetically Anglo-Saxon, you can 
have an Anglo-Saxon soul, let's say, because Avola talked about that, that, you know, certain people with Jewish genetics could have a Hyperborean soul and that sort of thing, right? Sure. <laughs> Based. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah. So I don't know whether it's worth bringing up, but yeah, such a well, thing can that's be a good, There's a good practical yeah, angle there, and that, that is, well, what do we do with America? So another good reason to understand the past is to understand how things went wrong. You have to understand what went wrong, and you have to under, important to understand that you kind of have to start with what are, what are the civilizational basics? What, what are the essential building blocks of any civilization? And then there's going to be variation, and then you want to understand primarily what worked in the West – and more specifically in your own country. And, you know, you could point to com- common things like patriarchy, a defined gender roles, religion. These are, you know, just generally speaking, you're an alien looking at, at you know, the course of human history playing out. And you're like, yeah, these are the things that, that work out well every, every time. A, a strong military, commerce, these are the things that, you know, you need. And that's why it's important to understand the past because we have, we have been totally sold a lie. And that lie is that, all of these things that we did in the past that, that were nice, right? Patriarchy, oh, we weren't nice enough to women or, you know, we we're conquering other civilizations and whatever that like, you know, somehow these things were bad for us. You know, they, it's just really not the case. You have to understand what worked, And that's part of putting the pieces back together because everything that you were being told by, you know, most of the college classes you could go to the mainstream media, TV, the political punditry, everything that you're being told about, what works for civilization, what makes a civilization or a people great is wrong. It's wrong. And, you know, they're either uh, idiotic and misguided or they're intentionally misleading you. One of the best I, examples, and we, don't, we needn't dwell on this forever, is, is the adage that diversity is our strength. It's a mantra that is repeated time and time again. And, you know, it even to the point where if you're, mo- if you, if you're mocking this on Twitter, if you're breaking this down, you know, people might roll their eyes at you because they've heard it a million times. Yeah, yeah. You know, like if you see uh, the latest, uh, you know, New York subway brawl that uh, that broke out or something, yeah, which is yeah. what everyone's talking about, of course. You know, if you were to quote, if I were to quote tweet that and say diversity, to, diversity is our strength or something. Yeah. You know, I'd have my followers and my replies Cringe, being like, "Wow, yeah. groundbreaking take." <laughs> 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 and um, you know, it's very true. And if that reaches the normies, very good. But um, yeah, it's important just to point out that like almost every study done on diversity shows that it is a net negative. You have Putnam's famous study, Pluribus Unum. Uh, there is a meta-analysis I talked about in the most recent Chronicles article I wrote. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, something like 83 studies uh, they, 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 they analyzed. And, you know, these aren't like far-right reactionaries uh, or ethno-nationalists doing these studies. These are just normal people that probably wouldn't agree with, you know, anything that we discuss on this channel. Uh, they would agree with, with the subjects of this meta-analysis, though. And, yeah, it showed that Diversity is not a strength. So we need to understand the past, understand what worked in order to put the pieces back together. But when it comes to, yeah, what do we do? We, we have America's roughly, what, 60% white, probably less. You look at a lot of the people who are counted as white on the census and, you know, they, they, they don't really look like, you know, you or I. That doesn't make them any less deserving of, of life or whatever. But, you know, just in terms of demography, um, you know, a lot of people get counted who are not, you know, ethnic Europeans. So the, what, what do we do? Okay, and of that 60% who are white, what percentage of them are, are actual Anglo-Saxons or wasps? And the answer is a lot less, right? Because you had a lot of the, the Catholic and uh, Jewish immigration from, uh, from Europe in, in the, tw- pardon me, the 19th century. So I, you know, talking to some of my friends who are kind of the wasp hardliners, 
And, you know, there's a lot of banter back and forth, but you know, when I, when I press them, okay, well, you're not, you're not getting rid of me, right. You're not getting rid of the Irish. <laughs> so what's, uh, what's, what's the plan here? What are we, what are we doing? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's basically you know, talking to these people who, who are, are more focused on this particular issue. It's, it's about affirming, yeah. Stopping mass immigration, stopping the great replacement, of course, but also affirming that there is a historic America and there is a historic mm. American culture where even mm. if there's never going to be total like WASP dominance again or something of the sort, even if WASP mm. are never going to constitute the majority demographic in this country, it's it's about affirming the 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 culture, the traditions, the values, the mores, yes. and, and also a respect for historic America, mm. for the not not mm. just even white people, but yes, of course, for you know, and you see this in some of the weirdo tradcath circles where, you know, they, they're like, oh, these, you know, someone like Adrian Vermeule who gets bashed uh, very justifiably and often in the dissident right. This, You know, he's one of these weirdo integralists. He's not like a hardcore Catholic reactionary like, you know, Joseph de Meister or something, right? He's someone who who is uh, is very weird. Uh, I'm not going to get into everything that he believes, but he's yeah. someone who's advocated for mass immigration from uh, from from Catholic, from poor Catholic parts of, of the world. So basically Catholic third worldism. Well, okay, that's not the that's not even Catholic not to say nothing about like historical Catholic reaction which absolutely uh, had uh, you know great respect for nations, the role of nations and peoples, the ethnos in in God's order. You also had you know you could also point to like Catholic paleoconservatism which is what what I subscribe to. Pat, Pat Buchanan, right? Pat Buchanan had great respect for the founding traditions of this country, the peoples of this country, while he was at some degree of Irish ancestry. Uh, he was also Catholic. Okay, well, that's not, you know, what the founders were necessarily. But, you know, I, I think that's that's the the correct role, whereas, okay, if you're not a wasp, you should, you should have a respect for that, and you shouldn't be trying to eradicate or be at war with that part of the country. And, you know, that's that's basically the way I looked at it. You know, growing up, I never saw myself like I'm an I'm an Irish Catholic and the wasps, right? I had friends who were Protestant, you know, growing up, middle school, high school, and I was aware that there were differences, but I didn't really know what they were. Um, you know, that that isn't that is a divide that that does exist to some extent. Um, but one thing I will yeah. say is some people get a little carried away with it because they spend a lot of time on the internet and you know, <laughs> yeah. it's normal people. It's it's you yeah. know that that divide maybe in the deep south exists to some extent. Maybe maybe in the north there's kind of still kind of a Yankee sense of of difference with with southerners but it also we shouldn't get too carried away in like online you know and i don't want to say echo chambers but you know the group chats and and you know 4chan and whatever yeah, where it's like hyper autistic about things that you know have some historical bearing but that don't have too much like if you were to study all of this and conclude that the irish catholics are you know that's not where the friend enemy division is so to speak no, and that's an essential no. part of politics is understanding you know at this point yes. if you're against mm. right all of the evils of transgenderism mm. of the great replacement mm. of the anti-white agenda um you know it's you know that that's what the divide is even if you don't like mm. that that's you know that's and there are going to be non-white people on your side as well so it's not just a hyper focused mm. ethnic division uh it's not just a racial division as well though we know how you know, we've seen the maps of how Americans would, how America would would go, how the country would go, elections would go if only white men voted, if only white people voted. Right? We all know the the demographic changes, but um, I think regardless of all of that, we need to affirm that there is a historic America. That it, it was, yes. you know, while there were Catholics, you know, at the beginning, that the, historically it has been kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. There's been this process of erosion. The process of erosion needs to stop. And that whatever future there is for America, there has to be a recognition and uh, for for the historic culture of of the country.
I think that it might be worth taking the pee off the wasp, right? Is that rather than, because everyone says wasp, 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 and it just keeps bringing a religious dimension. There are plenty of Catholic Anglo-Saxons, uh, right? At least there are in England. Um, and I, I think that people like yourself and many other other ethnic groups, if it's uh, I don't know, Spaniards or Italians, are more Anglo-Saxon, at least metaphysically, than they even realize, mm. right? So they are certainly... Too many people, especially on the left, there's this, especially with the Irish, there's a wholesome chungus gladio nationalism uh, with that liberal Irishness, which is just fake. It's just completely uh, ridiculous. Um, yeah. Yeah. They, well, I, yeah, the Irish, there isn't, yeah, Republicanism was, has had like a left wing, unfortunate, because yeah. it's anti imperial. So it, 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 yeah, there's always mm. been, I support Irish independence, of course, but yeah, there's always been kind of like a strain of leftism that over time has, yes. has really grown. And the funny thing is, is that I know the trad Irish people. I got invited on their channel to talk. I even thought, why are they inviting me on there? I just wouldn't have thought because I assert Anglo-Saxonism quite hard, right? Um, and, and these guys are all okay with English because they're, tra- they're trad. They realize, because Sinn Féin has always been a left-wing party. They're totally bringing in immigrants. They're replacing the, the, you know, the natives. So at least the Irish people are waking up to that. But I mean, that's sort of aside and aside. But... My point is that people are more Anglo-Saxon than they realize. I think you can more people have converted into that Anglo-Saxonness than they realize. Um, and how different, really? I've got a lot of people in my community that are Celtic uh, genetics, but they even say, "Oh, but we've got Anglo-Saxon souls, right?" They're obviously Evola guys. They so, and I was surprised by that. But there's that recognition there of, of what metaphysical being possesses them anyway. So I think a lot of that goes on implicitly. People don't realize it. If people are still calling themselves Irish when they've been in America for two generations or whatever, it's kind of silly, especially if they've been around that for a long time, I think, right. in a way. Yeah, I just see myself but, as an American white guy. Exactly, uh, you know, that's I, right. I, the, the fact that I'm Irish never became relevant beyond, you know, under appreciating family history, sure, but I never became yeah, yeah, like a political yeah. item until, until I joined dissident rights circles and they were like, yeah. you know... Uh, uh, Bill, Bill the Butcher posting at me or something. Of yeah, yeah, right. But it's yeah, funny, which is though, all good because, fun. I'm not. I'm not offended by any of it. Yeah. Yeah, and it is funny though because when you use white, white is uh, it always uh, it's very biological. Whereas the whole way of being connected to a people. Because when I look at the American problem, I'm constantly thinking, well, gosh, it would be easier to say, well, you no, know, Anglo-Saxon, because that has an implied whole way of being that's connected with it, uh, rather than just a skin color. Um, whereas white is more, as of course we know, is more than a skin color. It's a whole cultural European framework, or even just European, uh, right? Yeah. But that's just where, the way the categories have fallen. What do you do? That's just what the sociologists did, and we're yeah. stuck with the category. I've, yeah, I've got a kind of a controversial take that people might not be uh, too happy with. But uh, if you talk about what a people is, I think white is is a category for peoples, but to be a people is more than biology. And again, I think yeah. the people who want to obviously race is real. Obviously, there are, there are group yeah. differences. Obviously, race is a, a le- one level of identity. Um, it's mm-hmm. one in a multiracial co- uh, country that's going to have more relevance. But uh, you know, I think that yeah, to be a people. You have to you have to have more, right? Race alone isn't enough, um, you know. Obviously, and that's going back to what did America have at the beginning, right? Uh, ethnicity. We're talking about customs, 
language, religion, these very traditions. And I think that's one of the reasons why selling white nationalism to people hasn't like really, you know, I mean, there are people Mm. that get like the race stuff. Sure. But the average conservative who is now recognizing that there is an anti-white agenda is against the great replacement. Like a lot of these issues that I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe you only heard white nationalists talking about or something. Um, but th- these people are, are dying to become WNs, so to speak, right? Mm. Because what matters, these people still care about being an American, right? Mm. That is the level of identity that care. And we can, we can you know, take issue with that. We can say that the American identity has, has suffered. It's not worth holding on to. Mm. I'm not really of that opinion. So I, I think that really understanding like a white American identity is, is very important because it's, mm. it's, it's not just biology. It's not just ancestry. It's, it does speak to... Uh, a historical sense of rootedness, right? And again, mm. customs, language, tradition, and you know something a little that hits a little closer to home for people. And again, as well, yeah. there there is room for for minorities to you know outsiders to assimilate into that. Yeah. Uh, whether yeah. it's you know the Irish that came over, or to mm. some extent, uh, you know there are obviously people from non-Western backgrounds who are you know who would agree with a lot of the stuff that we're saying here. Sure. Uh, my issue with that is is the the scale and the scope to which there has been that you know gr- mass immigration from third world countries. Yeah. So I'm not saying yeah. you know that's that's the right. difference between me and maybe a total civic nationalist. Like no no no, we have to be demographically conscious of the people yes. coming in, of the amount of people coming in. But that doesn't mean like if I if I'm at a right wing, you know, I meet someone online who's who's you know of Hispanic background and they're like you know all in it for the cause that I'm going to be like ah you're not part of this or whatever else yeah. Yeah. So it's I think it's important to have like, you know, to, to kind of temper some of these instincts and strike a balance. Yeah. And also, of course, there must be there's probably some sort of epigenetic uh, component. Um, I'm not a, no expert on that, but I am an expert, pretty expert on those metaphysical things. You know, cognitive scientists talk about procedural knowing, which is not the same as propositional knowing, perspectival knowing. And uh, um, participatory knowing. There's different layers of knowledge that aren't just what we're trading back and forth, which are propositions, right? And they're deeply nested, embedded, and fill out this ethnic component. I mean, look, I will acknowledge, of course, the practical. Uh, it's completely impractical that people are going to do that these days. They're going to completely Yankee Doodle went to town and go full on. I'm going to spend the next ten years trying to be an authentic. Anglo-American, right? Some as an immigrant, or they're just right. so impractical. But some people perhaps do. But there's such a small percentage, so I completely acknowledge that. Um, and there so that's what a lot of people would to... say. That... Yeah, I was going to say this. There's such a lot. A lot of people would say this listening to the channel. They'd go, like you mentioned, they'll get the shits and say, "Oh, this is just this is going to affect uh, things by saying that it can be used against us, right, or whatnot, because we've got to wake people up to this." But I mean, it's just the, it's the truth of the matter. But sorry, you're about to jump in. No, I absolutely agree. I was thinking of maybe a comical uh, <laughs> extreme example of that. There's I don't know his name. I'm sure some of your audience does. There's this Internet figure who is this Asian guy and he lives in America and he's all about like the South and he's got the <laughs> cowboy hat. Um, he's got the I don't know if he was like a TikTok personality or what he's got, you know, Confederate everything. And yeah, you do see some of the stake. It can be kind of over 
over the top uh, at times. But yeah, I guess that's better than the alternative, which is someone coming over and saying like, yeah, this is a racist country and the people who built it, their <laughs> yeah. descendants need to be subjugated by a managerial, you know, affirmative action state. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was, yeah, assimilation used to be something in this country that had meaning. Not only is assimilation now considered racist, uh, the product of white supremacy, who are you to tell these minorities with with superior cultures, really, that they should be like white people. Uh, sorry, and also white people don't exist, right? These are the sorts of things that we're told. Um, not only, but but when you think of what are people actually assimilating to, you have to deconstruct the term assimilation. What does it mean? It doesn't have the relevance and salience and, and frankly, meaning that it once had. So there are a lot of well-intentioned conservatives that say, well, as long as they come legally and they assimilate, okay. Well, if you look at what assimilation means, okay, they learn the language and they go to college. Well, that's they're going to become like leftist advocates in yeah. you know and and advocates for their for their group in google as like diversity ambassadors or as political appointees and they're going to become left-wing judges and things of this nature and that that's for the you know talented 10th legal immigration types i believe asians are i think at some point they surpassed hispanics as the largest group coming in now with mm. uh, record levels of illegal immigration at the border three uh million in the last uh, the last two years under under Biden have made it into the country. Those are people who have been released by the Biden administration at the southern border and who have also evaded uh, the border patrol. Three point three million. That's uh, crazy there. I, I don't know if that's the case, but regardless, yeah, you have separate issues with the lower socioeconomic status immigrants. The ones who come illegally are not ones that would that have have an easy way of coming in uh, to the country legally. And, you know, they're uh, you know, that's where you have to worry about criminality more often and, and so forth. But yeah. It's 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 a problem, uh, problem all around. So assimilation, what are they assimilating into? They're assimilating into a culture of anti-white animus, mm, of mm. Black Lives Matter, mm. of mandated state mandated leftism. And beyond that, if you want to talk about the cultural products or, you know, it's it's Netflix, it's consumerism, mm. it's rap culture. Mm. And yeah, so yeah. those are, you know, and some will assimilate to the remnants of historical America. Right, like yeah, the Asian guy very, with the cowboy hat and <laughs> all of that. Uh, but the we, based on voting patterns and just observable reality, the overwhelming majority uh, will not. So one of many that's reasons right, why yeah. we need to end immigration. Yes, that's right, and it's the only sort of practical uh, solution because the idea that you're gonna, of course, we could go pie in the sky and say, oh, well, this is what a five-year proper assimilation class might be, and be a total integration of teaching folkways and all sorts of things right to such a thing to make such a thing possible uh, and that i don't think that's ever existed though america was quite shad in several ways early on when in louisiana um the government went down there or the people went down there and it was english only you're not speaking french anymore which is just <laughs> based back in the day and because in yeah. canada of course we let them speak they wheel they let them speak French when they should have They're still speaking no it more. to this day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how bad look of course terrorism later on. There's no terrorism in Louisiana, is there? But there is mm. in Quebec. So if they'd forced them, you, that would have uh, that would have worked, right? But you mentioned the South, and that's quite interesting in terms of sometimes underneath the taboo, you can find a, a way of being or a psychotechnology or something that can be used from the past that's hidden underneath the taboo of slavery, right? Actually if you put that aside, put that aside, and you look to the way of being of the Cavaliers who went to Virginia, who came from Wessex, and had 
a authentic old way of being that's hierarchical. They have a lot of great ways of being that were tainted by that liberalism that De Maestra would have agreed with, that would have uh, insulated us from a lot of the problems that happened in America, right? Um, that sort of, if you properly understand their hegemonic idea of hegemonic liberty, it's that it's earned with duty, it's earned with uh, honor, it's earned with, whereas when you go to the Puritans, the way they see liberty, it's everyone's got this equal thing, everyone's got an equal slice, right? Whereas having a healthy aristocracy is, is a good thing, and they, uh, they, if you have a hierarchy to ascend, that hierarchy is a good thing. It's not a permanent thing like the French had, which is the ancient regime and you're a pleb, and there's no way up. Whereas that way of being in the South, despite, aside from the slavery, if you just didn't have that as an unfortunate accident, their way of being was actually quite uh, good in terms of honor, in terms of, uh, they had, I've forgotten what it's called. They even had a knightly order of the golden shoe, I think it was called, right? Just ways of being that can be looked at to say, okay, America isn't just this Puritan place where they had this egalitarianness, or and neither it's not just Jefferson's uh, idea, even though he was Virginian, of the yeoman as a figure that everyone should be actually implicit in that Virginian way of being. They actually understood what the yeoman really is as a gateway to the hierarchy, right? So the pleb has an opportunity with a yeoman archetype because Yeoman is the next step up. It's the land, right? He has a piece of land. He's got Robin Hood in him, essentially, as a, as a way of being. Inherited from England. I won't get into the reason why, because it'll take too long. But that's what it was. Whereas Jefferson took it as this completely sort of libertarian version where everyone's a Yeoman. No, you've got the potential to be one. It's a gateway to step up the hierarchy. That's how it worked in England, right? And then we got ruined by liberalism as well. Um, but yeah. So that's a way of being. If you can look into these taboos to find those roots to say, ha, ah, hang on a minute here. We're not just this liberal place that ruined everything. Actually, there are some implicit ways of being that are part, could be part of the solution here in America. We're not just this revolution that fucked everything up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I, th I think it's a mistake to look at, again, uh, America as this... You know, it's it was just doomed from the start because of the Enlightenment era ideology. I mean, you can see how some of that stuff absolutely has been weaponized against historic America, basically. Oh, well, equality means we need to throw open the borders and give preferences to minorities, uh, women, you know, different all of these different groups, transgenders in hiring and in college admissions. OK, yeah, we can see how. But but that is that is you know a bastardization of what, what existed before. I think it's important for what you know. No no country is going to be perfect. I'm sure there are things to critique uh, the founding. Of course, valid critiques. But we do, we I, we need to affirm the historic understanding. We can't cede this to the left. We're like, oh yeah, actually the founders. It was all heading. It was always going to be this way. You know when people make these arguments, X led the Y. Well, because they're you know the you know. There was some of this language, uh, this egalitarian language in the founding documents. Well, that inevitably meant that we were going to end up here. And I, I think that's just a huge cop out for actually historically analyzing uh, the situation. And Professor Paul Gottfried, who's uh, one of the one of the greatest uh, intellectual minds on the right, is is of the same mind as well. In some cases, you can make a causal argument that, you know, in some cases, okay, this did lead to that, you know, this okay thing ended up leading to something bad. 
But did it cause it directly? And at the end of the day, I kind of reject this Hegelian uh, form of like ideological history where you're this historicism where you think these ideas just totally evolve on their own. And, and, you know, in some cases, there's maybe some of that. But at the end of the day, it's people with motivations uh, and interests who are taking ideas and interpreting them, implementing them. In ways that that oftentimes are, are counter counterproductive or not counterproductive, uh, contradictory to what they previously were. So one good example is you have the liberalism yeah. of the 19th century, which Paul Gottfried mm-hmm. would uh, describe as or characterize as a bourgeois liberalism. So that's yeah. more, you know, what we might consider classical liberalism. I think he might object to the term, but, you know, limited government, uh, you know, industry, all of that stuff. Right. What you had in the 19th century. Uh, but that also was was a very stratified society racially. It was also mm-hmm. a deeply Christian society, deeply socially conservative. Okay, and then you get to the liberalism of the 20th century, and in most ways, it's the complete inversion of that. Okay, well, do all ideologies naturally, you know, any ideology can be inverted, mm-hmm. right? It's conceivable that you could take any ideology and say, you you know, well, create something that's the complete opposite of that. But do all ideologies inherently invert themselves? No. Sometimes you have people who come along and, and misinterpret them and, and make all of these changes. So in the 20th century, you had mass democracy or liberal democracy, um, which is based on the welfare state, which is based on uh, these you know, civil rights law, preferences for minority groups, women, uh, gays, transgenders, uh, ethnic and racial minorities. And you have it. So in many ways, it's the complete opposite. So, you know, was was it inevitable that that would lead to the other? Well, whatever the flaws, I'm not saying the 19th century liberalism was perfect. Um, you know, it wasn't inevitable. You could say that it led to that in the sense is that that is what people took and changed. Um, but, you know, if you want to say that X led to Y, everything that comes after something before you have to blame the thing before. Okay, well, you'd have to blame Catholicism in the ancient regime or Christianity more broadly uh, mm. for the French Revolution. Mm. And, you know, the, the reactionaries don't want to do that. And I, I don't think that would be accurate. I think that, you know, you have to understand these things as, as the products of unique historical experiences. And yes, that kind of ideological interpretation, there, there's some merit to it sometimes. Um, but also there's this idea that everything is just straight down. It's all been straight down since the French Revolution. It's all been straight down, maybe since the Protestant Reformation, maybe since... Mm. Uh, you know, since ancient Rome fell or something, depending on what your yeah. particular ideological worldview is. And I think a more accurate historical perspective is that there's a lot of back and forth, right? It's over. We're back. It's over. We're back. Historically, yeah. uh, you have revolutions, yeah. counter-revolutions, restorations, yeah. and you've had a lot of that through history. So I, I would just encourage people to, yeah. uh, not saying that the founding was perfect and flawless, not saying that 19th century liberalism was uh, totally without, uh, totally undeserving of critique, or it was perfect, but I, I think that we should just avoid these very simplistic understandings of things. Very tempting to do that, yeah. especially when yeah. the thing that you're, you know, when, it, when it's benefiting your your ideology and so forth. But I, I just yeah. think it's kind of lazy at the end of the day. And I also think that um, it's you can quite easily have another hermeneutic or interpretation where you ground it properly, like we mentioned earlier with Virginia, what I just said with Virginia. That's an alternate hermeneutic. That predates the actual writing of a constitution. And you could say, well, hang on, a constitution is just a proposition, just like the, uh, uh, what's it called? 
Magna Carta. That's the end product of the final thing. You just say, well, that was a particular mistake, but it's not the reason for everything. And you say, we're not going to use that. We're going to go and, you know, rewrite whatever, this, this, and this, right? So history is not causal, as you say. If we take a Heideggerian understanding, being is constantly, it's not, because causal is this. It's A, billiard ball hits billiard ball, moves to that, right? It's just not how it works. It's being itself, we possess being, We've got knowledge, possessed being. That gives form to the, to the time, time, everything that's happening, right? So if, you could have a, if someone had a different hermeneutic, a different stage, it would have changed everything. If they'd reinterpreted the past in the middle of that, it could have changed the whole path and timeline. Possibilities stack on possibilities. And that's why I say even now, even with Spengler and all this, is that anything's possible. When, when you, when, if you, something gets going... If, if when you have the right ideas, when something is, when a new hermeneutic can come along, even a second religiousness, I suppose you could say, it's, it's, all, it's all up for grabs. Um, and the way that it, although there is a big machine, I get that. It's, um, but possibilities stack on possibilities. And I think that that work is worth doing. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't attribute cause, be very careful to attribute cause. Oh, it was this or that, it was that or this. It's very hard to know what it would have. Perhaps it would have ended in the same place. But because if you think like that, you go back to Descartes and you say, oh, the radical subject, that co- the, the subject, right? The object, subject, relation. Yeah. Oh, that, that's the individual, right? So that caused liberalism. Was it Locke or was it Descartes? Because with, with that radical subject, you can see it naturally come from there. So he's to blame there, not the Anglos. It's, you know? yeah. And then you go Heidegger and Heidegger will say, oh, the mistake was made with Plato. When he, from the very first, when he took the <laughs> ideas, you know, so, yeah. I mean, that's uh, actually, there's probably more justification than what he says, because that was when knowledge itself was first, you know, when ideas were first defined. So perhaps earlier mm. on, you can track something, but yeah, it's very hard to attribute cause. And I think uh, as, yeah, I'm basically just agreeing with you and what you've said. Um, yeah. So, so maybe you can tell us about some of your work recently, like what you, you've, Tell us about what was your inciting incident. I'm not, I'm not asking you your red pill moment. This is a different question. This is what drove you to sort of have the courage to step forward, bring your face in front of things, right? That's a big decision. It was for me because your career trajectory, that can change a lot of what you can and can't do, what's possible and what's yeah, not. Yeah, you're right? basically, so, yeah, your career trajectory is singular because uh, there, there are many options once, <laughs> once you're on the ADL or SPLC. So yeah, I mean, I've always, there, there are always things that inspired you, can do, you but... what gave you vitalism to do yeah. what you've done. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I mean, I've always been interested in what's going on in the world. And, you know, when I was, I remember 18, I was into like Ron Paul at the time. And I didn't read any of the foundational libertarian texts. It was kind of a lazy, like I was just reading like news articles and, you know, I started watching Infowars and, you know, what are the globalists up to? What are the bankers up to? And, yeah, there's still that relevance to some of that stuff today, obviously, although my perspective has changed drastically. And I don't know, what was the foundational moment? I, I think once I really set on this path was watching the migrant crisis play out in Europe. I had been aware of mass immigration in Europe uh, as, as a thing, you know, going back to, I don't know, 2012, 2010, I was in college and I was like, yeah, this is not... I just naturally the idea of lots of people from the Middle East in, you know, uh, taking taking up like a big greater and greater percentage of the population of Europe. I was like, it just doesn't seem right. These people have their homelands. I don't hate them or anything. But, you know, Europe is a place for Europe, uh, Europeans. 
And, uh, you know, obviously every country is going to have uh, some minority, however small. And, you know, I don't think people, you know, minority populations should be mistreated or whatever. But, yeah, when you're talking about, you know, at, at the time, what I didn't know it as the Great Replacement. But, yeah, that's that's obviously what the, the main driving thing that, that got me involved was like, this is just mm. totally unfair and it's going to end in mm. misery, probably for all parties involved, but definitely for the people the native people in these countries, right? And you've mm. seen the things that have played out in your country and other parts of Europe mm. where, you know, actual citizens and natives, uh, native Europeans have been kicked out of, you know, mm. uh, nursing homes and hotels and apartments and stuff to make way for it's It's utterly scummy and despicable mm. and totally indefensible, right? You know, there I, I can see why some people, some of the views I hold, I can see why some people might you know, object to them and I can look at the other side and still say, I see it, but I, I'm not going to agree with it. But yeah, the stuff with like the great replacement and how, how indigenous Europeans are being treated. I there's, I, it boggles my mind how I, I don't think there's like a centrist defense of this. I think you do have to fully be bought into, uh, bought into the cult. I guess the centrist defense is it's good for, uh, you know, economics or something, but obviously we could, we could debunk that and, and uh, push back against that. So yeah, that was the main issue that really motivated me. Uh, when I started getting involved in this stuff, it was 2016 and it's, it's been a wild ride ever since. Yeah. But yeah, it's, were you, were you worried about doing it at the start? Is it something that you were not a face Lord to begin with? And then you thought, okay, now's time to. Yeah, yeah. it was, well, it, it was a gradual thing. And yeah. Uh, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't show my face for a while. I was just kind of a guy on Twitter. I wrote, you know, mm. art pieces or, or, or what have you, but uh, by late 2017, I started using my real name and, uh, my, my face of course. And you know, at that point there was no going back, but it, it always felt right. Right. It always felt mm. like, well, what else am I going to do? I had, you know, it's not like I couldn't up, up until I, I fully, you know, na- name docs, face docs. Uh, there was, there was always the option of going back, but I, I think a lot of the dissident right has been vindicated very, very significantly. Mm-hmm. And that uh, there's an increase from from the broader we're influencing the broader conservative movement and Republican Party in ways that previously I, I had mm-hmm. never imagined. So I think that the arrow of history, so to speak, is is pointing towards our views, right? Our yeah. analysis of the situation, our various solutions, which are admittedly are are varied in the center, right? There are a lot of insane ones, extreme ones, stupid ones. But uh, you know, people, people, and I, every day I, I come to realize the extent to which people not only ha- are paying to our I, attention to our space now, but have been for a really long time. Uh, people yeah. who, yeah, work in like the, you know the government in in DC, mm-hmm. work for congressional representatives, people in like bigger uh, conservative media think tanks, all of that stuff. Uh, a lot of them are you know on our side. Uh, they're not you know they're a lot of cucks, a lot of rhinos, so to speak. But um, it's it's definitely. You know, not even just in a self-serving perspective, but you know, it's it feels good. No, you know, I've mm. we felt you know ghettoized for so long, but no, our ideas are, or I guess were, being talked about on you know the largest cable news, mm. you know, the, the largest television show, Tucker Tucker uh, tonight, and you know, I, it's going to be interesting to see what Tucker does going forward. But even the fact that he was, you know, reading tweets uh, yeah. from from various dissident right accounts. And talking about the great replacement, demographic change. Yeah, it shows that we're right and that people are recognizing that and that it isn't hopeless, that it isn't hopeless. It's not that, you know, when I got red pills, it just seemed like it was people on obscure Internet forums. My first exposure to this stuff was actually 2012. It was far long before I got involved. And I was like, well, I guess it's just people on 4chan, right, on poll who see things this way. (laughs) 
And lo, lo and behold, no, 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 more and more people come to our side every day. And, you know, we're going to, we're not going to red pill everyone. There are going to be a lot of people who refuse to go along with, uh, with this stuff. But I, I think that especially we, we've made so many great gains in the, the kind of the right-wing political operator uh, crowd, right? All of the people I was referring to people with power, influence, and money. And, you know, at the end of the day, those are the people who are going to play an outsized role on, on the developments of things to come. Yeah. Yeah. That's all that that's all very interesting. Um, for you, a lot of people are looking for likewise aligning with their destiny. Would you sort of stumble upon yourself? Um, but also vitality, like what, what practices, uh, they can do. So for you, what, what, what's, what are some of you, I know this might sound very basic, but what are some of your mm. routines? What is, what do you do in the morning? People are looking for the simplest things to in, either engage with even political life, but Things that give you vitality it could be anything. It could be poetry, whatever it is. It could be just a practice you do in the morning. What keeps you going? What stops you from getting black pill? Just anything like that. Sure. So I think none of the answers I can really provide are going to be interesting, or maybe not interesting, but they're they, not yeah, going to be anything you never novel. Know, man. Just, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's and it, I think these things are important though because even though this is common advice, I, everyone watching this, look at yourself, you know, in the mirror and ask yourself: Are you doing these things right? Is your or mm. is is your religious life in order? Are you getting enough sunlight? Uh, maybe it's a little harder in uh, some parts of Europe, but you know, are you getting outside? Are you getting fresh air? Are you spending time in nature? Are you reading right at least mm. like half an hour a day? Um, or is your is your diet on point? And for most people, they're not going to be hitting off all of those just because mm. that is what it is to be human. It's a struggle, and I'm not saying I'm perfect in that regard. But you know, uh, before COVID, I had almost near impeccable. Uh, habits with regard to lifting weights. I was training mixed martial arts and, um, you know, I wasn't like a power lifter or anything. I was getting stronger. I was, I was, you know, look good, felt good. And then COVID started and that's when I became a live streamer. And I just was spending all of my time indoors, right? There was nothing to do outside. Everything was closed. The gyms were closed. And, you know, I just developed a lot of bad lifestyle habits. And it really, really the last year or two has been uh, getting back in the habit of, Yeah, that and it can be difficult because so much of it is psychological. Like when I'm there lifting weights, or if I'm if I'm doing cardio, I I enjoy it. But when you're just not used to putting that into your day, then it's it it can be very difficult. But you want to cover all of your bases: spiritual, uh, economic, intellectual, emotional, um, all all of these things. Physical, of course. And you you just want to you want to have a holistic uh, approach to personal development. And, you know, some people aren't going to be very religious. Okay, well, you know, I would I would uh, definitely, you, you should at least try it out at least one yes. point in your life. I mean, yeah, I was, I was you know, I was raised Catholic and up mm. until I went to Catholic school up until like eighth grade. So it was definitely like a big part of my life growing up. But, you know, I was, I was a kid and, you know, maybe some parts of it I liked, but didn't really, didn't really click. And as an adult, uh, you know, as a teenager, I was like, oh, I'm not interested in any of that. Like I can think for myself, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, over time as after getting red pills, I started warming up to it and, you know, realizing there aren't really any alternatives. Uh, I guess, you know, some people are into like, you know, Norse paganism you see on the internet, but that's, it's not, obviously you have the right to do that, but that, that's not something that's ever going to like fully, uh, uh, take on. And I have great respect for the cultural practices and maybe not practices, but like creations of, of pre-Christian Europe, the, the Eddas, the sagas, admittedly I haven't read much of, but you know, uh, the, the classics of, of antiquity. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, it was never like, you know, in a theological appreciation. 
And I, I don't think for most for most pagans it, it it is that same level, right? A lot of pagans, it's just kind of like, well, I'm pagan in spirit. And um, yeah. but I would encourage everyone gives practicing, you know, an ancient faith in mm. in this case a traditional form of Christianity. And I, I would be remiss not to show for Catholicism, of course, yeah. uh, not to just just you know be be a relativist here. But yeah, I mean, um, you, you should give it a try uh, as, as an adult, right? Before if you're committed to, to atheism. Well, you should you should give it an honest shot. If if you rule out it's not for you, well, you're lost at the end of the day. But um, that that's been a great boon to to my life. I mean, there's really uh, it's I, I do think that man has has a unique religious drive, and yes. we see how this plays out when Christianity's out of the equation. What are people worshiping now? Uh, all sorts of things, right? Money, uh, sexual depravity, uh, black people, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. gay, uh, you know, women. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. like you know, a weird kind of like matriarchy. Uh, like you know, goddess worship that that has set in, and all of that is all of that is wrong, right? It is objectively wrong. There is an objective divine moral order to the cosmos, and uh, you know, I think that other religions, yeah, they get part of that, right? I'm not a perennialist, right? I'm not a relativist, but you know, I can look at. I was interested in Buddhism uh, in college. I never called myself a Buddhist, but you know, I can look at okay, you know, without Christ, they got some stuff right, and you know, without Christianity, that's probably better than nothing, but. Yeah, absolutely. Christ is is the way, is is the word. And mm. again, not to proselytize too much, but I really would encourage people who have not mm. really given it a shot as an adult to, to try it. Right before mm. you rule it out entirely, you should you should give it a shot. And I would even say that you're not a great thinker unless you can have or can convert yourself into out of physicalism into something. You can go back if you want, but if you don't have the ability to actually fully convert yourself into orthodoxy or, or uh, Catholicism or idealism, right, and fully believe it, that's a skill that great thinkers do, right? Because you, you, you can't really, because that's, and it's a certain type of knowledge, perspectival knowledge. There's a way to do that. It's a, vir- a virtuous practice. It might take you years. But you know how you see a lot of people that say, oh, I tried, I tried to be Catholic. I tried to be. You didn't really. Did you really? Did you really imbue all the practices? You went and really did it and converted into it. And then you went back. No. And the, the answer is no. Right. So if you want to be a great thinker, again, you can go back later. But you don't if you haven't actually fully converted into it, you don't understand the perspectival knowledge you get with it uh, uh, to truly understand it. Right. And there's a lot to be said for that virtue engine of the practice on the Sunday, even for the simple things like coming out of COVID, like you said, uh, Patrick, whereas your virtue engine's been pulled apart. The Sunday practice is a very simple thing. It's an anchor that you can actually build, you build the whole rest of recovering that sort of virtue engine on. For me, I do that on Sundays. I, I, you, know, you plan the week. You say this after church. You, you plan the week and write, okay, review the week, plan the week. And one thing that might help people that are listening uh, after COVID, actually, is doing th- you do things one at a time and habituate them over two weeks the simplest things, and then you build that up, right? Rather than doing everything at the same time. So it could be just walking to do the weights and picking up, uh, oh, sorry, I just said disconnected. I don't know if I, okay, sorry, it's back. Anyway, anyway, yes, so you habituate something over, over weeks, one thing at a time, starting very small and building up and rebuilding that virtue engine. And there's a reason why Christianity has a calendar, right? There's a reason why it's a Sunday practice because as a being, we are more than just a biological thing that wakes up in the morning. We are a temporal being, right? But yeah, is there, is there, 
anyway, you either respond to that, and then uh, if there's anything else you want to say. Or well said. I agree entirely. Yeah, I, I don't know how much uh, I could really add to that, but yes, the that that is an interesting part of of returning to uh, the church, which mm. which happened slowly over the course of 2020. I think uh, early 2020, I went to mass. I was, you know, I just had like stuff in my personal life I was kind of down about, and mm. uh, I, you know, I just was like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, give it a shot, and. I was living in West Virginia at the time and the church that was up there in the area, beautiful church. I've got, you know, beautiful churches here in the DC area too, but mm. you know, it's uh, a little different when it's, you know, kind of in the, there, there's like wheat field, literal wheat fields or like cornfields, like in the background. And then you see like the Hills and I was, it was uh, you know, a very, very beautiful experience. And mm. you know, that, uh, that, that caused me to get back into it, of course. But what you're talking about with time is, is very interesting. The idea that there is, yeah, you, you have, you know, we have we have the seasons, of course. There's this idea, and even in the secular world, of of cycles that we are that we are part of. Mm. Um, but when you add a theological component to that, it's it's uh, a very yeah the litur- liturgical calendar and all of that. It's uh, you're thinking of like you know what what was Christ doing in his life mm. throughout the years, and it's, it's uh, I'm sure people who are familiar with like Jung and and Durkheim could could you know describe it in the specific terms. But the idea of like sacred time of your participating in, in something that is, you know, in that, that is something that is essentially kind of timeless, but it is, but, but it is brought down into the, the cycle of, of a material world time. So it is very interesting. And it's something that, again, uh, you can talk about all you want, but to experience it is, is something yeah, yeah. entirely different. Yeah. And it, just a quote came to mind. The C.S. Lewis said that um, Christianity is less plausible in a hotel room. And what he meant by that was the hotel room is modernism. We built in modernistic values into the very structures of our houses and to all this stuff. So it's imbued with a profane world. Whereas traditionally, we didn't build, every building was built in a traditional structure, right? If you go back far enough, even Neo Gothic. So of course, it's more plausible. It seems like it's not plausible because, again, we've imbued the world. The profane world surrounds us. When you go to church, you break down the profane and you enter the sacred. That's the real place. This is the, is the inauthentic being, as Heidegger would call it. This is the fake one. It's, break, it's, it's peeling back those layers of, your, of the inner-worldly junk, I suppose, that gets thrown in this. You'd see less of that junk if you were back in a traditional society is what I'm trying to say, because it's in the very buildings. It's in the very, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I think one thing people struggle with these days is definitely the rationalistic, overly Mm. intellectual, maybe not even intellectual, overly, overly rationalistic just spirit of the times, so to speak. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's not as much the case. uh, If you look at a lot of the stuff that the people in power believe in and advocate for, not exactly the most empirical and, Mm. uh, uh, but, but I think that modern man generally, generally has, while the religious drive has not been extinguished. And I don't think you could ever extinguish it. Something there is going to have to furnish Mm. your sense of understanding of your place in the universe and, you know, your sense of being and, and all of that, I mean, Spengler's pretty insistent that atheism is a late-stage civilizational mm. thing. It's not in any civilization. Uh, you have you have the great systematizer who comes along and rationalizes and systematizes Nietzsche. He gets a lot of this from Nietzsche. That was a big part of mm. Nietzsche's project. Uh, you know, if you're a Christian, you absolutely cannot sign on to the entirety of of Nietzsche's thought. Uh, mm. But I think at a sociological <clears throat> level, he was he was correct to some extent that you know, as a result of 
uh, you know, he was writing this in, in the very late, uh, mid, what, mid to late, uh, pardon me, 19th century. He was was getting, you know, when he talks about the death of God, my understanding of that is not that he said that there was a metaphysical God being that that died. He was saying that Christianity was no longer, God was no longer going to be, have the same power and influence over people just in just like a sociological historical sense now we we see that as a problem as christians that needs to be rectified by a rebirth of religion um not something that maybe you know nietzsche would say well we just need to go through that and just move on okay but he is correct that there, there is a challenge in the modern world to be religious and i think a large part of that is because we are in a late stage civilization where atheism and you know the systematizing is man's senses have been atrophied. That's a good way of looking at it in the sense that we, you know, the intellectual capacity, reason, like logic, empiricism, uh, obviously there's some of that stuff plays plays a role in Christianity, sure. Um, but it's it's overemphasized and we've lost sight with our spiritual faculties. And I think that's that's the best way of of looking at that. And I understand a lot of people, you know, I've I've that was that was a difficulty in for me uh in, in coming back to the faith is you know, thinking of, of, you know, I, I studied, you know, social science in college. I was interested in, you know, a lot of the HBD stuff. Okay. Well, this is, you know, you, you don't have studies to prove this. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of, it does require a leap of faith. There, there are great arguments that Aquinas uh, and I'm sure others make for the existence of God. There are many great historical spiritual reasons. When you examine the nature of man, does Christianity, you can say, does Christianity have a compelling diagnosis for, for the, for the ills of man and, and of this world? And I think it absolutely does. Um, but it's always going to require some leap of faith. You're never going to be, you know, short of com- God coming down and talking to you <coughs> directly, which I would not rule out. Um, but in mm-hmm. most cases, if God's speaking to us, it's probably very subtly. Mm-hmm. And again, mm-hmm. that's 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 something that you know you need to you need to hone your spiritual faculties by practicing Christianity, so you can understand God's plan for you um, in this world. But it's it's just very different, right? And what what C.S. Lewis said about the hotel room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be harder if you if you are stuck in you know that the physical maybe or or psychological room of of the mm-hmm. hotel room. Thinking of what that symbolizes, mm-hmm. then seeing the truth of Christianity or just even religion in general, like why it's necessary, why it's a good thing, well, allowing yourself to to open up to it and to put aside the you know kind of atheist mm-hmm. uh, fedora <laughs> objections to it. Yeah. General, very important, stuff. and that, that that left brain mode has been thrusted upon us, which is what utilitarianism is. It's that it's a propositional mode of systematizing, and what it really, a way of talking about this is, is that you can't map transcendent truths with propositions. That's the limit of human knowledge, right? But there are other forms of knowledge which we have: proposition, uh, sorry, uh, perspectival, uh, procedural. But outside of that, that's what these some. Uh, a sim- symbolic tales, you could call them. And I don't mean symbol as in metaphor. I mean they are a psychotechnology, a tool to mediate a transcendent truth that you can't capture in human dialogue, in the words that we use, which is what our being is made of. There are things outside of it, which is God. There's Christianity, the truth. You can't just capture that. You can have it in the Bible, and you use the Bible, of course, to get behind the Bible, which allows you to get behind it. And you, but you never fully map it in propositions. That's, that's what people don't realize that's what i didn't realize originally right thinking oh you don't like you said don't have a study for this well yeah because you can't map that you have to actually go through the practices to understand it and what people need to realize you've got to be careful not to worship spurgism because that is a actually a right brain deficiency right brain is, is the context it's the deep it's the uh connected to the 
it's the world. It's the world underneath of what you see in your everydayness. Your, and that, that's made of the proposition. That's made of the things you know. The right brain's more embedded as a whole, sees things as a whole. And they have that deficiency. And I love our Spurgs. I love, you know, I love our guys, our 4chan guys. They'll Spurg out and go to the end detail. But it's the obsession with the single, singular detail, right? So actually, though, like I said, though, if you can't convert into it, perhaps you have a right brain deficiency. And you should see it that way, not as, oh, that's fake. It's actually a thing that I can't get into or can't uh, imbue myself into. And a way of thinking about that Nietzsche thing you mentioned is what happened was fundamental, authentic, true being turned away from us. As we got obsessed with our own systematization, this sort of happened. And that's what happened. We, man became the measure of all. And when you make man the measure of all, his fundamental essence is nothing because we are imbued with the world and all our knowledge comes from being and God, right? And when you start looking at ourselves, it's, it's into the nothing. And so the next step is postmodernism. That's why all the meaning sucked out of everything. That's the meaning crisis. That's everything. Because once you start looking to yourself, then you've only got nothing as a guide. But what we really are is what Heidegger calls the fourfold. It's being... We're in between. We're both nothing and being. And so that's what's happened. Being turned away, that was, we killed God because we started to look at ourselves as the measure. And so we didn't kill him. He's still there, but he's turned away from us, right? Not so, though, when you go to church. That's the whole getting back in. You think about yourself like a bubble. You're breaking out of this thing to open yourself to the sacred, and that gets you to truth, I suppose you could call it. But um, yeah, anyway, I don't want to, I shouldn't go too no, much well into said, the, Well said, well said. No, I yeah. absolutely agree with all of that. Yeah. All right. Well, look, we'll bring this to a close, man. Is there anything you wanted to? I, I'll have your channel in the description. That was great. Um, anything else you want to say? It's, that's, that's probably, that's it. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you want to, people want to subscribe to my YouTube channel, I do Restoring Order. It's a weekly podcast, usually on Wednesdays. I think I've been doing Thursdays more often lately, but um, you know, the overwhelming majority of people watch after the fact, you know, I started live streaming during COVID and I was used to like, I don't know, anywhere from like 50 to 70% of the people who would tune in would, would do so live, like right then and there, get it while it's hot. Um, wow. but you know, that's, it was a weird, very weird time to start like a career as a streamer, so to speak. Um, but these days, yeah. So it's, it's, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I think people have subscribed to the channel. They'll, they'll get it, uh, eventually. I've had a lot of great people on. I would love to have. Has got on here as well at some point, uh, maybe maybe a little down the line so we can space it out, uh, give it a little yeah, time. Yeah, Anytime. but um, yeah, I, I'm planning on working on more like video essays and stuff. But uh, mm. you know, I've got a lot of things going on. So I also, if people want to, you know, hit my link tree, I've got my author page at Chronicles and mm. and so forth. So yeah, follow me on Twitter, all that good stuff. But um, definitely, uh, Scott is is a great interviewer. I from from what I've seen, I watched some of his stuff before going on the show. Um. You know, I, I'm inclined just to like accept if anyone invites me. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. But, you know, it's always good to click through and, you know, see. Because there have been a few yeah, times no, someone's I've, invited uh, me on. And I feel, I've been about to say, okay, I look at their profile. I'm like, eh. yeah, yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> um, so, yeah. but yeah, this is obviously a very professional program. Scott is, mm. I'm very impressed with what I've seen. So I hope people are supporting Scott. Um, I don't know if you have a, like, I guess oh. these, these are. Go oh, ahead. Okay. I was going to say, uh, I've said to Patrick, I think it's one of the best programs that you've got. I can't believe, you know, it should have well, way more you. subscribers than it already has. 
Right. Yeah, um, I don't know if it's I ever going to be DMs. like, you know, go viral or anything, but uh, you know, the content I enjoy is, and funny is definitely too. the more niche stuff, mm. you know, maybe the biggest person uh, I, I keep up with in terms regularly would be academic agent. Um, and mm. you know, Aaron McIntyre, those are like the biggest, you know, that's, that's mm. the, the biggest I'll go. But um, I was going to say, I, ho- I hope everyone out there is finding some way that they can contribute to the cause, right? Everyone mm. has something that they can do that can be yes. getting involved in local politics that could be for most people probably getting a good job, starting a family and, you know, just, mm. you know, finding someone to support, finding a, you know, political cause, uh, content creator, whatever. And uh, I'm not going to show for myself. I've got supporters. They're great. And I'm greatly indebted to them. Not literally, but I am you know, thankful uh, for, for their support. I would, I would hope that people are supporting Scott. Um, if he has a Patreon Substack subscription program, anything like that. And you watch this regularly, you should, mm. you should be absolutely supporting him. So. And I'll just conclude and say that destiny is out there waiting for you if you're willing to take it. And that can be as being part of this movement. So God bless it. God bless you, everyone. Thanks for coming on, Patrick. And that's it. God save the king spirit, as I say. And we'll cut it there. That's great, man. Excellent. That was a great talk. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah.